Imagine just trying to fit in, be a part of the group, and taking drugs at age eight. The All Eyes on Me podcast is the true story of Vincent Lilly, his struggle with drugs, addiction, recovery, and onward to hope and health. Be ready to experience another world. Here's author Kevin Zadrill and Vincent Lilly. Hello, welcome back. My name is Kevin Zadrill. I am the host of uh, this podcast. And we're focusing on by the recent book, All Eyes on Me. And uh, it's a true story of addiction, recovery, and hope. And with us today is Vincent Lilly, who is the book about. And uh, very proud to have him here with us today. Thank you for having me. So this is our second podcast. And uh, we had touched base a little bit on the first podcast with some history of how you and I met and... Uh, uh, spoke somewhat about addiction, and I thought uh, over the next 12 weeks, as we get to know you more and, and the contents of uh, the book, it might be a good chance and opportunity right now to speak a little bit more uh, to get to know you uh, with your upbringing, because it was very unique um, and with many challenges. So for people that don't know of you and uh, haven't read your book yet, this is a uh, a good foundation that sort of helps identify um, perhaps a lot of the influences as a young child um, that sort of navigated your, your life. Um, so I know uh, for yourself, one of the um, challenges as a very young child was when you were diagnosed with hemophilia. Perhaps you can kind of take us through that that whole diagnosis and what it meant to you as a, as a young boy. When I had been told about it, I was pretty young and I didn't really know very much about what they were talking about. So um, I think what I look at it more like is that they're pretty much just trying to restrict me from a lot of the things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I noticed that when I was a kid and people would always try and tell me that I needed to be careful because of the hemophilia. Um, that I would pretty much do the opposite of that. And um, because I just, you know, I didn't feel like, I didn't, like, they made it seem like I, like this should slow me down or something. But really, uh, you know, I felt like a normal kid. So I just pretty much probably just did the exact opposite of whatever they would tell me not to do. What was the concern um, having that diagnosis of hemophilia as as a kid? Well, I mean, I guess when I when I was diagnosed, it was uh, it was in the eighties, and so that was quite a while ago. So I think hemophilia in the eighties, I did. I'm pretty sure they weren't really very aware of the severity of it and all that kind of stuff. So I'm pretty sure they were they were a little bit scared about things that could happen because they didn't really probably haven't hadn't faced it very much with the other kids. Mm-hmm. So. I think they were just, uh, they wanted to be very cautious because they didn't know the, the limits, the limitation that it had. And so, yeah, I guess they were just, uh, they wanted to be very careful because it was like, for instance, it was like with this kind of like with this coronavirus, they say that they don't like, it's, it's kind of new. So they're a little bit skeptical of what can happen. So back then they weren't really familiar with what, what the possibilities were with it. And what what could be some of the health effects uh, with that sort of diagnosis? Well, it's basically just like uh, I'm missing a factor in my blood 
um, so my blood doesn't clot on its own. And so um, I basically have to take injections twice a week just to, um, it's an anticoagulant that clots my blood. And so when, it, when I, uh, if I get hurt, the, the injury will progress a lot faster than a normal person. When you were um, a young boy, a baby, basically, now your mom suspected something was not quite right because of the bruising that she was seeing on your body. Can you speak a little bit about that? Um, well, yeah, I think it stuck out fairly quick for her because um, obviously at the age when they had found out, I was, I think I was little, like I was a little baby. So I was crawling, I think, in that, walking around crawling, I think. Um, so I had been getting these injuries to my knees and to my ankles where it would pretty much just swell up like really big. And so, you know, she said there was multiple times when she knew that something was wrong because I would try and stand up to walk and I would just fall over. And it was because I had an injury to an ankle, to my ankle or to my knee. And it was just like a big ball, you know, like big swelling, like, like not normal for a kid, right? And she, obviously I'm the youngest of four boys, so she's very aware of with the other brothers, any injuries that they had were nothing like this. Mm -hmm. So she was definitely more protective in terms of uh, keeping you safer. But of course, being a, a young kid, that's last on your mind. Um, they In the book, you mentioned that they had a particular way of trying to protect you uh, with your legs and, and braces, Oh, yeah. Um, uh, well, pretty much, yeah, what they would do is they would put me in casts if ever I had an injury to my ankle or to my knee or to my leg somewhere. Uh, they would put casts on me, even though the bone was never broken. I had never broken a bone in my body except for my nose. But, yeah, even though the bone wasn't broken, they would always put casts on it to restrict the movement. Because as a kid, obviously, even though, even though – that I had an injury, I didn't act like I did. I would try and still you know, be normal and do crazy stuff. And so they would have to cast it in order to limit the movement. So you had that, these casts on, you're trying to hang around with your brothers and your friends. And of course, you know, these casts are in the way, but uh, as you mentioned in the book, um, you were, you were, you were pretty adamant not to wear those casts and often you would be uh, found, uh, trying to take them off. Yeah. Usually if I had a cast on and my mom went out and came back home, that would probably be the first thing she was worried about when she'd come back. If she couldn't find me, she knew that she'd just be going to the washroom and find me in there, uh, likely in a, the bath, trying to soften the cast up so I could cut it off. <laughs> yeah, very creative. Um now, the consequence, though, uh, as we spoke about in the book, was when you started to go to school, um, even as a young guy, you, you did notice that for reasons that you weren't maybe understanding, kids were treating you differently. Well, I think um, the teachers had a big contribution to that because of the fact that um, just like the doctors in the very beginning finding out about it, they when they found out about it and were told about it, they were obviously very uh, scared and worried about, you know, me and obviously they don't want, want to be held liable for any sort of injury that's 
happens while I'm in in their class or whatever. So they would tell the kids, you know, they would tell the kids like at recess and stuff like that, that they need to be careful with me. And they would always make sure that everybody was aware of it just so that they could uh, avoid any sort of incidents. And for you, then you started to notice that you're being treated differently. You weren't part of the group. Uh, now, while it was for your own safety, how that, how did that make you feel though as, as a young boy? Um, I think if anything, uh, it had more of an effect on me than them, than let's say the doctors actually telling me that I had the disease, you know, because it was like, they told me that I had the disease, but I didn't let that bother me. I still did what I had to do, what I wanted to do. But when these kids and all that were told about it and they started to treat me different, that affected me more because, you know, it was like in my area where I would, you know, try to have fun with kids and stuff like that. And kids wouldn't really want to play with me or they would make fun of me and pick on me. So it was, uh, it wasn't very fun. No, for sure. And, and so as growing up and you're trying to establish friendships, but you're not being included in that, um, the, you know, schools were trying what they thought would be in your best interest, but at the same time, um, when you're trying to be a young kid and you're not able to, um, the schools were starting to have a bit of a reputation for yourself, right? That how they were going to look at yourself. You had brothers coming through that were older. Um, you spoke briefly that the, the life around your home wasn't a normal lifestyle. Life around my home? Yeah, in terms of just... You know, there wasn't the, the supervision, right? So there was a lot more time for yourself and your brothers to kind of do what you wanted to do. Um, but because of that, um, there was a bit of a reputation starting um, that as you were starting to enter the school system, they already had, you know, the schools had ideas in terms of how what you should, maybe how you're going to behave. And already they were kind of changing their attitude towards you. Well, I mean, I started obviously uh, when I got picked on in school or bugged in school, I, you know, I obviously did what probably a lot of kids would do is, you know, um, you know, kind of like stick up for themselves and whatever. Right. So um, it's pretty, it's pretty ironic because literally what happened was like uh, the schools kind of told the kids that I was weak. Right. So the kids took advantage of that. They tried to take advantage of that. And I started and I uh, turned into a fighter. I start. I started I, I turned into a kid that was fighting in that to kind of like protect myself. And. And then then they would um, punish me for that. So that's why I said it was kind of ironic because it's like they created what. Out like not to say that it's not an excuse, but I mean, it's the reality that. They created this and then they wanted to uh punish me for how i was acting when i was just a kid and i was doing what i had to do right to protect myself definitely and and i think that really came to a head as you're entering um i guess you know grade seven and you were pretty excited to be going to a, a new school uh to be with your friends 
but then something very traumatic happened to you um, when you came to school that day. Oh, you mean uh, when I went to high to junior high or high school or whatever in grade seven? Yep. Um, I guess what happened was I was pretty excited to actually get out of that school because it was the the uh, elementary school that I was in that started this whole thing with the hemophilia where they started killing all the kids and that's where a lot of the fights happened. So I was pretty excited to get out of that elementary school, go to a new school where I would actually be able to hang out with all my friends. And uh, so when I got moved from that school to the new school, um, the high school, uh, they ended up putting me into a classroom called the hut. It was classroom that was a building that was actually outside of the school and uh by it's completely by itself and so this is kind of like a like a rubber room or where they put the kids that, that don't behave or whatever so they put me in that classroom and um I wasn't even allowed to go into the school um if I was to go into the school I would get charged with trespassing or uh stupid stuff like that so it was a uh, it was pretty hurtful because you know, I was, I was just secluded and I wasn't able to do, uh, wasn't be able, able to hang out with my friends. Um, I mean, obviously we could hang out at lunchtime at McDonald's or something, but I mean, I, that, that feeling of uncomfortable, the uncomfortable feeling was still there that I had to kind of stay away from that part of the school. So yeah, it was, uh, it was kind of shitty. And, and yet, you know, your your mom had tried to speak to the principal to have to negotiate to give you a chance, and you weren't even given that chance. No, I think, uh, yeah, I think I was just labeled, and um, I guess once they label kids, they just don't want to they don't want to take the chance, and they they say that you know they don't want to take a chance on affecting the other kids. Um, education you know by these other kids into the school so that you were about eight years old at that time um eight, when nine, i went almost 10 12 no, maybe getting closer to 12 well yeah around 12, okay. 12 or now that had a profound effect um because you are now making a choice between not liking school to the point of a big decision that you you made yeah, I didn't want to be there. I, I so I ended up dropping out and well, like, yeah, I just pretty much just never really showed up for school. Um, I, I did actually go back there every once in a while though, like to hang out with friends and stuff like that, but I never wanted to go to school and to the classes and all that kind of stuff. Cause I don't know. It just, I just felt like it was really ridiculous that, you know, I, I had no, no passion, no drive to be there whatsoever. Cause you know, just, they just took everything away from me. And it really, as we, as we, you discussed in the book, it just started to fuel a new feeling in you. And that was anger. Yeah. Well, I felt like I, I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere I, where I went, you know, so it was time for me to try and establish my own way in life. And so just so happens I ended up, uh, Popping out of school, and what happened was basically I started hanging out with the other kids that popped out of school. You know, all the other kids that weren't going to school, 
at, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning when I'm trying to hang around somewhere, that's where all the other kids were that weren't in school. You know, we get together and, and then, uh, you know, eventually we started getting into illegal activity. And what do you think was driving that activity? Just you had nothing else to do? Was it rebelling against the systems and just that anger driving it all? Well, I think it's uh, it's 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 something that's I think it's just it's something that's learned, you know. One of the kids passes it down to the other, you know, and that's all it takes, right? And then it just keeps. Once one kid has an idea, um, we're all pretty much good to go with it because you know I, I was pretty much just wanted to you know to fit in, um, to be accepted. So I was kind of pretty much down to do whatever anybody wanted to do. And in the book, you, you talked about how the older kids were showing you guys, the younger kids, uh, about crime, about theft, and, and they were kind of grooming you. Yeah, I think uh, the older guys took advantage of, took advantage of that because they realized that, um, and who knows, maybe they maybe they're in the same shoes as a lot of us kids, where they grew up without fathers. And in this case, it was almost like they had their little kid. It was like almost like they had their own little kid of their own, right? Where they could kind of like teach them to do things and teach them how to do things well. And so they would, you know, teach us to do crimes, you know, steal cars or break into houses or stuff like that. And that's what we started to do as teenagers. We'd have little teams that we'd get together and we'd, you know, we'd steal cars and go break into houses and, it was something that we would try and get good at because then it became, because then it became about uh, getting away. That was the, that was the challenge just to get away with everything that we did. And so then that would be our fuel to it is that we'd be trying to see who, how could we get at it. So it doesn't sound like there was any fear of consequence. Um, I think there was, of course, there was fear there, but there was, uh, I think the uh, the feeling that that we got from from doing the the from committing crime and stuff like that, it was almost like uh, it was almost like a drug, you know what I mean? Because the adrenaline in that, mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty intense, obviously as a kid too. So once you did get over that fear. Once, once you did get a little bit of a better handle on that fear, that adrenaline would feel even better. So I think we got a little bit addicted to that feeling. Uh, I don't really want to get into crazy detail, but I mean, like the feeling that I got when I would break into a house and uh, be in somebody else's home and, and not know whether someone's home or whether someone's going to come home on there is a pretty intense feeling, especially as like a young, as a little teenager, right? Mm-hmm. Was there um, a lot of drug use at that time between you guys? Uh, at that time, it was for me, it was mostly just like the the um, smoking weed was pretty much what where it started. Yeah, there wasn't much hard, there wasn't really much hard drug use going on around in the people that I was hanging around with. So, your mom at that time, single parent, four boys. Where was she in all of this? I, it must have been overwhelming for her. Where was she? Yeah. We always talk about in the book supervision and lack of that. 
How much of an influence is it when parents are losing control? Um, well, I mean, for my mother, it's a little bit different for her because around this time was around the time when she started to actually um, get, uh, when she started to, uh, you know, kind of get her life back on track. So, you know, she was a, she was a teacher at this point. She was uh, busy doing her thing, right? And so it was hard, hard for her to kind of keep eyes on us also. Mm -hmm. So at that time, it was just doing what you wanted to do. And um, I would imagine staying out all night long as well. Yeah, pretty much that's what we would do. We just, we did pretty much what we wanted because it was hard for, we knew that it was hard for my mom to to keep an eye on us. And so we took advantage of that, right? Because we were good at um, what we did. So that was what the thing was. Yeah. And and this was eventually going to start leading into uh, interactions with the police, again, at a fairly young age. And, but that still never really stopped you guys from, as kids, doing what you wanted to do out there in the communities. Yeah, no, uh, I guess, uh, I, I did end up going to jail at, at 14, but um, the problem with that is that my mom, she would always come and get me out of jail. Me and my brother Darcy, uh, who's 18 months older than me, we were pretty much really close and we would, you know, do crime and do drugs and drink and all that stuff together. But uh, she would always come and get us out of jail right away when we'd go into jail. And so I just kind of felt like, I didn't get a chance to feel the full effect of what I did. You know, I, I don't want to uh, put my mom down or anything because I know that if I was a parent, I would have a hard time not, not doing that too. Right. You know, you want to get your kid out of that. Mm -hmm. And so, but ultimately I just, um, I, I didn't get much of a chance to feel the sting of that. And I think it was a lot easier for me to just keep doing what I was doing because I it didn't really feel much of a consequence for what I did. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an important piece that you, you spoke about often in your book that if had you maybe spent more time because at 14 years old, that's a scary experience. For sure. I think that's the, that's the time when the thing, things need to be nipped in the bud. You know what I mean? Like, um, and obviously I can understand as a parent um, you don't want your kid to go through that. You know what I mean? And that, that's, it's a natural thing to do is you want to get your kid out of that. So if my, for them to call and say your kid's in jail, you know, your first in, instinct is you want to get them out. Mm -hmm. It's natural. But I mean, ultimately the best thing to do is just leave them there. Yeah, that, that's a great point, right? And I think, as you say, it's difficult as a parent to make that choice. But at the same time, that experience could be a turning point. Yeah. Because you described what it felt like as a, as a young kid, you know, at, at the youth center and, and the fear that you had. Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty scary there, especially as a kid. Uh, I had no idea what to expect, obviously, when I was there. Obviously, I had been there multiple times. But I mean, obviously, in the beginning, I was pretty freaky because uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're ultimately left 
you're there with a bunch of the other kids that are involved in uh, getting into trouble. So it wasn't, uh, usually it wasn't a very positive atmosphere. Yeah, no, that wouldn't be. And it's, it's um, I think it's a good takeaway for, for parents of giving them a sense of what they could do or not do if they're finding their own children following that sort of pathway and, and, you know, maybe giving them some direction um, that might help bring their kids back uh, and giving them some structure. So I think uh, Vincent, it's, it's a great um, stopping point for today. Um, it gives us now a, a better sense in terms of the environment you had as a young boy with your diagnosis of hemophilia and then the way that, you know, as a protective nature in the schools, but it really kind of worked against you and the effect it had. Um, and really quite startling when, you know, you decide at a young age to drop out of school and then take it really to the streets where that became your new home and your new uh, support system. Um, Definitely, we're going to explore it in deeper detail, really where that led you um, as a youth at age 14, um, further down, and uh, we'll continue that uh, with our subsequent podcast. Really appreciate, uh, again, the opportunity to spend this time with you this morning. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>